Well, good morning, and would you join me in God's Word, John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I will read verse 1 down through verse 16. Follow along with me. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Join me in prayer before we begin. Father, it is our desire, even our passion, to hear from our God and Savior, to hear through the written word. And I pray that you will help me to communicate that well in what is before us this morning in our worship together. Give us humble and submissive hearts under your word, under your teaching. And I pray, Father, that as we get up and leave this place, we can be the representation of your light to the world around us that you've called us to be. We ask then for your sanctifying work in our lives. We ask for the ministry of your spirit as we are all going through individual circumstances or trials or difficulties, and we depend on you to give us joy. We depend on you to give us satisfaction. We depend on you to sustain us and even to use us for your glory. Have your way then with us this morning. Give me the ability to speak clearly and well on the things before us in this study. And we pray, Father, that you will be glorified. Your son will be magnified because we have gathered this morning in his name. We pray that in Christ. Amen. I think we understand the 11th chapter is very well known to us, familiar because of the resurrection of Lazarus. But here in the 11th chapter, John moves his reader closer to the cross of Christ. 
In fact, when you come to chapter 12, you will see we are but six days before that final Passover when the Lamb of God will be sacrificed on the cross. John is taking us then down the final stretch of the Lord's earthly ministry, which will find its climax on Calvary and the empty tomb. Yet what John has strongly emphasized in the past several chapters is to show us unbelief and the hostility of the Jewish leadership. And this unbelief has been in spite of the miracles and the works demonstrated by Jesus that revealed his divine nature, that revealed his true character. These works had repeatedly ministered to the hurting needs of humanity whom Jesus felt compassion for. We're going to see that yet again in chapter 11. We're going to see the miraculous power of the divine nature of Jesus Christ here in chapter 11, in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But what is noteworthy about this first part of the chapter is a miracle that is often overlooked, and it is that Jesus predicts the future death and resurrection of Lazarus, and what will be accomplished by that work, by that miracle. Namely, verse 4, the glory of God. Christ is about to accomplish the glory of God and to find glory for himself in what is going to take place, not just in the raising of Lazarus, but in the hostility of the Jews and where that will ultimately lead Jesus Christ, that is, to the cross where he will be glorified as the Redeemer and Savior. The striking part here is that this glory will lead inevitably to Christ's humiliation, his suffering, and his death. The glory that will be revealed in raising a dead man is going to be fully ignored by the Jewish leadership and eventually by all of Jerusalem. And I have to say that if I were to plan an event of glory it would certainly end differently than the cross. But we can see, knowing back, stepping back and knowing the whole story, how that death and humiliation, the suffering of the Savior, the cross of His own sacrificial death, how that is glorifying to Christ because He becomes the exalted Savior and King of His people. Jesus, knowing all that was going to take place, orchestrated this most magnificent miracle for the glory of God and that he might be glorified along with the Father. That in itself is a divine miracle. Only God can orchestrate and understand the future. Only God has that kind of control over what is going to take place and the glory that will follow. Jesus would allow the death of his beloved friend And he would willingly experience intense suffering and death upon himself. And you and I only know the glory of the whole matter because we have the scripture before us. And we know what's going to come. We know what's going to take place on Calvary, the empty tomb, and the gospel that will follow. But for the disciples who heard the words of Christ in verse 4, and for the family of Lazarus during the trial of his sickness and death, it would have been difficult for them to understand the Lord's prediction of glory from all of this. And at this point, you and I can place ourselves there, can we not? Because when we face trials or sickness or even face death of a loved one, we don't always see that glory. That's where the disciples are at this moment. 
That's where Mary and Martha are, and even Lazarus, who lays sick at this moment in our account. When the times of trouble and heartache come in this world for us, do we often think this is for the glory of God? Or that he will be glorified in the end? And I think there are many lessons we can draw from this passage that hopefully we're going to capture to some degree this morning in a couple of points anyway in our study together. But John opens this chapter by telling us that Jesus gave life to a dead man so that he would be glorified by it. This chapter will certainly show us that God brings his light into the darkness of man's sinful world and he has done that for every true believer. Chapter 11 also introduces us to the fifth great I am declaration, where Jesus said, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And it is from that declaration and from this miraculous account that our own, as believers I'm speaking, as our own spiritual resurrection, it is here represented that we have been raised spiritually to life. This is found in this story. Christ is glorified in this. And just as the ninth chapter dealt entirely with the healing of the blind man and with the circumstances that would follow, the entirety of the eleventh chapter deals with the glory of Christ through the raising of a man named Lazarus and all that would be accomplished thereafter by that miracle. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses and what is, I believe, the context in this plea for help by the family of Lazarus. The first part of our study will be to examine this appeal by these two women, Mary and Martha, on behalf of their brother Lazarus, their appeal to Christ, come and help, come and help. In reality, if you look at verse 3, the actual language of the message of these two ladies to Jesus sent by a messenger is only informing Jesus of the sickness of their brother. They gave no instruction or make no request to Jesus to come and help. It is not until we get to verse 21 and verse 32 of this text that the intentions of these women were made known. They informed Jesus of their brother's sickness because they hoped Jesus would come at once to heal him. And because Jesus did not come at once, Lazarus died. And it is in this first section of chapter 11 that we learn from Jesus that was his intention. His divine foresight, his divine knowledge, his divine and sovereign control of everything that would come out of this is a description of the divine nature of Christ. And it would glorify him, it would glorify his Father. And this again is where I see that we can place ourselves in the position of the disciples or Mary and Martha, because we can find ourselves in these difficult times, whether it's sickness or death or some other crisis, even the COVID, and not know what is the outcome of this thing. But we have a God that does, and he is absolutely in full sovereign control, and he will be glorified. That's where we can put ourselves into this 11th chapter. Jesus delays coming. But we also know that Jesus tells his disciples, this is not going to end in death. 
Jesus most certainly does not mean that Lazarus will not die because he intended Lazarus to die. But what Jesus meant by that declaration that this will not end in death is that that will not be the final stroke of God's power and his determinations. In our study this morning, beginning with the first six verses, in the plea for help, we see a display of the Savior's love for this family. We see the Savior's love, a response of love toward Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So the first part of John 11 kind of sets the stage for the miracle of life that Jesus intends to bring to a family that is troubled by, concerned by, sickness and the possibility of death. And verses 1 to 6, John gives to us some significant details about this story, all pointing to the glory of God and the glorification of God's Son. What John highlights in the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus's family is the deep love that Jesus had for them. And it's not going to be hard for us to make the connection between that divine love of the Savior for his people and the glory of Christ as we move forward in our study. But by way of introduction, this section opens with John telling us about where Jesus is, where Mary and Martha are. They're in Bethany. Jesus is not there. Remember, we left Jesus in chapter 10 on the other side of the Jordan. He had left Jerusalem because of the threat of being stoned or seized again by the Jewish leaders. So Jesus retreated. He escaped their clutches, the Jewish leaders, and he went to the other side, the eastern side of the Jordan River, where John the Baptist had been ministering. Obviously, Mary and Martha know the location of Jesus because they send a messenger from Bethany to that eastern side of the Jordan River where they believe Jesus was. Now, Bethany lies a short distance just east of Jerusalem. And if you look at verse 18, it's within a couple of miles east of Jerusalem where Bethany is. John the Baptist, however, was ministering up in the area of Perea on the eastern, northeastern side of the Jordan River. So the sisters sent word by a messenger to find Jesus in this area and make him aware of Lazarus's sickness and no doubt the seriousness of his condition. If you will look at the language there in verse 3, they say, Lord, behold, that word is an exclamation point. It's declaring the seriousness of this, that immediate action, immediate attention is required here. Behold, the one you love is sick. And again, they give no direction to Jesus. They give no appeal here, at least explicitly. And in truth, Jesus knew the circumstances of Lazarus before he even received that message, since he tells his disciples what he intends to accomplish in all of this. Jesus already knew. And he knew what he was going to do in light of Lazarus' sickness, and he knew that he would be glorified in the end. Nothing in this story has taken Jesus by surprise, but rather he had predetermined this event for the glory of his Father and that he would be glorified through what he was going to accomplish. In addition, there is an element of, here of God's people bringing their concerns and cares to the Savior. Mary and Martha knew Jesus well. 
They had witnessed his ministry, his ministry of compassion and mercy. They had witnessed the miracles and heard of the miracle power of Christ. That's why they're sending an appeal to Jesus. They were hoping for one of those miracles. Sending this appeal to Jesus tells us several things about the lady's confidence in Jesus to bring help to their family. And this is our confidence as well. You can put yourself in a posture of prayer in the message that these two women are sending to Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we could observe here, number one, is a trust in God's sovereign care. A trust in God's sovereign care. That Jesus Christ was sovereignly in control. By the lady sending an appeal to Jesus or alerting Jesus to the seriousness of Lazarus' sickness, they are recognizing Jesus has the ability to have this in hand. It appears that they have enough trust, Mary and Martha, in the wisdom and the goodness of Jesus Christ that they feel this message will accomplish something. But they're not going to make any demands of Christ. Why? Because they trust him. They know Christ. They know that he will take care of this thing. Certainly Jesus would understand the urgency of the matter, and he would exercise his perfect will in this matter. Later on, we learn that both ladies hoped that Jesus would come before it's too late. But the matter was left to the judgment of Christ in the message itself. They make no demands of Christ. And we learn from the Gospels that Jesus would not even need to make that trip to Bethany. If he wanted to, he could proclaim Lazarus healed, and it would be so. We've seen that before, even in John chapter 4, the healing of the official son. In a very real sense, we can view the message from Mary and Martha as kind of a formal handwritten prayer to the Lord. They were appealing to the God who can make all things right. They were appealing to the God that knew all the circumstances. They didn't even need to fill Jesus in on all the details. They trusted him. They did not presume upon God to give them what they thought best or what they feel they needed. They were trusting in the Savior. Lazarus is sick. It's urgent. They left it up to the Lord. They only asked that Jesus would consider the concern, their concern, and bring help to them. Now, without a doubt, they had their own hopes in the matter. And we learned that in subsequent verses. But their appeal here is an appeal of trust. A second detail in this this environment of love is to see God's love does not remove all trials. This is important. It is to be observed here that a person, notice that Jesus loved. This was in the message by the ladies. The one that you love, Jesus is dreadfully sick. The reality here is that Jesus loved Lazarus and he allowed Lazarus to be sick. He allowed this man to experience death. Just because Jesus loves any one of us does not mean that he will deliver us from suffering. Again, the overall theme of this story is that God was to be glorified. That's the theme here. God was to be glorified. 
And this point is drawn out by James Montgomery Boyce, who wrote these words, and it's on the, the quote on the back of your note sheet. He says that the man whom Jesus loves is, after all, still just a man. It is in the nature of being a man to suffer bodily ailments. Now, Boyce goes on to quote Charles Spurgeon. I was going to bring this up on the board for you to see, but I forgot. So you'll just have to listen. Those of you that are watching at home have this quote on your note sheet. So those here this morning, if you want it for yourselves, you can download that on our website. This is what Boyce quotes from Charles Spurgeon. The love of Jesus writes Spurgeon, does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still men. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from the consumption or rheumatism or asthma. Those are probably big issues back in Spurgeon's day. It's not a charter of exemption. The fact that we belong to Christ by his redemptive grace will not automatically dismiss us from sickness and suffering. Boyce then continues to write, So let us learn from this and not be surprised when we ourselves or those we love suffer illness. Don't let it take us off guard. Our Savior loves us still. And I think we could add to that statement of Boyce's that we should also not be surprised when Jesus does not heal our sicknesses. It is true that in this case, God would be glorified in raising up from death this man whom Jesus loved. But we also know that very often God does not heal the sick people that he loves by his grace. And I don't know the last time I saw a man in the grave for four days come walking out. The glorification of Jesus Christ and our appeal to him for help are very much bound together. Christ will be glorified in the end. It may be through my healing, and it may not be, but Christ will be glorified. And it is good and right here that we make the appeal to God when we are troubled with cares. I think the ladies demonstrate that. Their appeal to Christ was good. It was right. They came to the person that can help. And that cry for help was an expression of their trust and humility in a man that they knew loved them. When we have issues, trials, sickness, when we're concerned about death, when there are other issues going on or circumstances that are troubling us, it is right to come to the Savior because we know He will be glorified. He does love us, and we trust that He will take care of us. A third point will be helpful for us to consider in this matter is that our lives are fully governed by the love of Christ. Our lives are fully governed by the love of Christ. Both in verse 3 and in verse 5, our text tells us something important. It tells us that Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Martha. But do you notice what it doesn't say? Especially in that message in verse 3, Lord, behold, the one that loves you so much is sick. There's not a bargaining chip here being given by the ladies. They recognize they are under the Savior's love. And so is Lazarus. 
The point here is that Jesus loved these people, and he did so with a perfect, a divine love. His love for them was complete. It was pure. It was not weakened by circumstances or by the doubts or concerns of these ladies. The love of God, the Son of God, loved Lazarus, and he loved Mary and Martha. His concern for these people did not depend on their love of him. It did not depend on their devotion to Christ. It did not depend on their performance in serving Christ. His care for them depended on his unshakable love for them. This is an important truth I hope we take hold of. The care of the Savior for our lives does not depend on my love for Jesus, my performance for Jesus, my ministry for Jesus, my devotion, my faithfulness to him. His care for me depends on his love for me. Now, that is what is highlighted in this text. The emphasis in our appeals to Christ should be that he loves us with a perfect love. And it's out of his love for us that he gives us what we need, maybe not necessarily what we ask. He gives us what will glorify his good and loving character, not what we think our love deserves. As the word says, we love Jesus because he first loved us. The story of the cross is first and foremost about the love that God has for his redeemed people. That's the story of the cross. Jesus did not die for me because of my love for him. He died for me because of his love for me, and he did so while I was still yet a sinner, hostile to Christ. God's glory was manifested by a love that required the suffering and death of his son. And we love and we serve Christ because of his perfect love for us. It is out of his love, out of the Savior's love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus that Jesus delayed his coming for two days until he was certain that man was dead. Jesus knew the grief that his dear friends were going to endure over those days leading up to Lazarus' death and for four more days thereafter. But he was determined to allow that moment of suffering in those whom he loved so that through their suffering, God would be glorified and the glory of the Savior would be put on display. Can you see the connection between the glory of Christ and his love for us? Sometimes we make this too much about me and what I want. This glory would be seen not only in bringing Lazarus to life again, but in the events that are going to follow, including the hostility of the Jews, who will witness and hear of and see a living Lazarus and become all the more hateful to Jesus Christ, so that in the end, they're going to nail him to a cross, which will fulfill and accomplish our redemption, the glory of Christ will be manifested. Our story continues in verses 7 to 10 as John turns the attention towards the disciples. And I refer to this as a walk by day because of the language that Jesus uses here. A journey of trust and stability, a journey of security. After Jesus had delayed coming to Bethany for two days, he instructs his disciples, let us go to Judea again. 
the disciples are very concerned about this because they know what they left in Judea when the Jerusalem leaders were going to stone Christ and then they were going to lay hold of him a second time. They had murderous intentions. So the disciples are concerned about Jesus. You want to go to Judea again? Disciples warn Jesus that murder is still fresh on the minds of the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. So they question him, Lord, why? Why would you do this? Why would you take the risk? Why would you put yourself in danger? And Jesus then responds in verses 9 and 10. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, according to the ancient timetables that the Jews lived by, 12 hours was day. The night was a different story. We have a 24-hour cycle. They're living by a 12-hour cycle because, well, they don't have street lights and bed lamps. So at the end of the day, when the sun went down, things shut down. It's not hard for us to figure out what Jesus is explaining here. When the sun went down and the dark of night comes, a person is going to stumble over things if they're going to keep on working. So the point of the text is that Jesus has only been given a certain amount of time by the Father to accomplish the work of glory that he spoke about in verse 4. And since God has appointed this time for his son, Jesus was not going to allow the Judean threat to keep him from doing God's work. He will not be intimidated by the fears of men, the dangers of men, when God has called him to do this work. And therefore, they were going to travel to Judea where God had a work for his son to do. Now, we should note here that Jesus does a subtle change of words here in verse 10. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Do you see a subtle change here? Jesus does not say that walking in the night causes us to stumble because there's no light around us. He goes internal. It's the light that is missing within you. So he switched from an external problem of darkness to an internal problem of darkness. And I believe that what Jesus is alluding to here is that he is walking in the light of his father's plans and purposes for him. In a sense, the night would represent the end of his earthly ministry. So he has but the present time to accomplish what God the Father has given him to do, to glorify God and to be glorified himself in what he's going to accomplish. The night then may well represent not only the end of his ministry, but his death on a cross and the end of what he had been called to do in his earthly ministry. For the disciples, they walk in the light so long as they are walking in and with Christ, living for his purposes and according to his will for their lives. And like Jesus, they only had so many hours in a day to accomplish what God had given them to do, what Christ had called them to do. So some important truths come from this passage as well. First, Jesus is teaching his disciples, make the most of your time. Make the most of your time. Now, there's not only a spiritual application to this, but there is a temporal or a physical application as well. 
We are called to walk in the light of God's purposes. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have a new master who orders our time. He orders our day. We're called to walk in the light of God's will so long as we are in this present life. I want you to look at Ephesians again. Ephesians 5, as Christian read to us this morning. Go back and look at Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 6. And listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 5, beginning verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. From this passage, walking in the day has the spiritual application of walking in and with Christ. Living in the light of his will for our lives. And Paul characterizes this walking as children of the light, as that which bears the fruit of righteousness and goodness and biblical truth. In other words, we're walking according to Scripture as Christ has called us to walk. This is a life that is learning to please the Lord. We're walking according to the plans and purposes of Christ. That's the spiritual sense. But there's a temporal sense or a physical sense here as well in regard to walking during the day. We are making the most of our time, as Paul wrote here in Ephesians 5. We only have so many hours in a day, and we have only so many years of life on this earth. So Paul is exhorting all of us as believers, make the most of your time to walk as children of the light, to walk according to the plans and purposes of Christ. Therefore, we are to live for the purpose of Christ in the span of time that we are given. And this forces the Christian to set priorities for each day and each week. As was read to us from the Psalms this morning, our days are numbered. God owns those days. I don't know how many days I have. I want to make the most of the time that he's given me. That's the exhortation for believers. There are certain things that we need to sustain life in. We have to go to work. We have to go to the doctor. We have to do things on the car or the house. There are certain things that just are necessary to sustain life. But this passage, along with John chapter 11, Ephesians 5 and John 11, are exhorting the believer, be diligent about the time that you have walking during the day We are to be living according to the plans and purposes of God. We're learning to live for the pleasure of Christ. Using our time for the glory of God is going to require that we give priority to the things that he has called us to do while it is still daytime. Now, a second point also comes from our text that we don't want to miss is that Jesus dismissed the danger of traveling to Judea to accomplish this work of glory. You will notice that in verse 7, Jesus does not say that he will now travel to Bethany. He says, let us go again where? To Judea. And he uses that word again. Let us go back to Judea again. Why is Jesus using those words? Why is he choosing to use language that he knows is going to trouble the disciples? 
He's reminding them in his very words in verse 7, we left trouble there. Now we're going to go back again to Judea. The disciples at once remind Jesus of the danger in Judea. They just left that behind a short time ago. What Jesus wants his men to see is that his life was fully in the hands of God. Their lives as well in the hands of the Lord. There was danger in returning to Jerusalem. And that danger would be on Jesus soon enough. But Jesus had also been called by God to fulfill the purposes determined for him. So long as Jesus was in the will of his father, the risk was of little consequence to him. Why? Because he was safely and securely in the hands of his father. Even in going into danger. Jesus must go to Judea and perform a miracle work in Bethany for the glory of God and to glorify himself. God had called Jesus to this. And if God had called him to this, Jesus and the twelve were safe in the plans and purposes of God. Whatever God determined for his son would be accomplished and it would bring glory to God. Jesus is describing here a place of security and safety for his people, even in the midst of danger. Therefore, safe does not mean sickness or trials or death are going to be taken out of the picture. It only means that we remain in the security of Christ's care, even if through sickness or death. We are safe so long as we are in the light of God's will. In other words, God will do with me and with you as he pleases as we continue to live according to the counsel of his will. Whether that be in life or death, sickness or health, we're secure there. And given what we've seen from this passage so far, what the Lord is pleased to do with us is always, always an act of his perfect love for us, and he will accomplish his glory through us. You can be sure Mary and Martha did not understand this fully the moment that Lazarus breathed his last. And here we come then to a lesson for faith. Beginning or picking up in verse 11 through verse 16. This Jesus said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go so that we may die with him. We come now to the final part of our study this morning where Jesus begins by using figurative language, though it's not all that uncommon to Old Testament scripture. To fall asleep or having somebody that slept with the fathers in Old Testament language is speaking of death. And no doubt the disciples had heard and read those things in the Old Testament passages But here in regard to the context of Lazarus' sickness, they didn't know what Jesus was talking about. They're puzzled. 
because they're hearing Jesus say, I'm about to go into dangerous territory when Lazarus is taking a nap. And Lazarus will wake up. He's sick. He needs to rest. He'll wake up. He'll be okay. So Jesus had to speak plainly to them. No, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for it. I'm glad that I delayed. I'm glad that I was not there. Why? It takes us back to verse 4. Because Christ will be glorified in what he does through Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and now that application of glory for his own disciples so that they may what? Believe. What they needed to see in Jesus Christ is just what Jesus declared later on, that he is the resurrection and the life. And to be sure, this is some of the glory that Jesus spoke of earlier, that his own disciples would come to believe. They would see his divine nature. So he's saying to them, I'm glad that I was not there to heal the sickness of Lazarus. I've waited until he's died so that you can come with me to this dangerous territory and see what the power of God will do. Jesus could have come to Bethany while Lazarus was still living and heal his sickness. Jesus could have commanded Lazarus to be well while he was still on the other side of the Jordan. But since Jesus did not go to Lazarus and allowed him to die instead, his disciples are going to witness the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And this will be a critical truth when they watch the Savior die and see him buried and they come to the empty tomb, or later they examine the nail prints in his hands. And they will know then that the Son of God is the Messiah that must die, be buried, and rise again. That he is the resurrection of the life. And it will be critical to the ministry, the gospel ministry, that they're going to take to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. There was more to come in the revelation of glory from raising of Lazarus by Jesus. But what takes place in John 11 will lead ultimately to the glory of the cross. And this glory will begin with his own men, believing and seeing that he is the resurrection and the life. That as Jesus said, he who believes in me will live and will never die. They would witness Jesus call out of the grave, a man who had been dead for four days. There is something in the words of Christ here that inspired Thomas, you'll notice, to boldness because he responds to Jesus by turning to the other disciples and he says, let us go also and die with him. You know, we may sell Thomas short because in other passages, Thomas is struggling to believe. His faith is weak. Sometimes he's just ignorant of the promises of Jesus Christ. And we see in these kind of passages, like John 14 and John 20, Thomas expressing those kind of doubts. I'm not sure what you're talking about, Jesus, when you say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Or where you're going, you're preparing a place for us. He was the one that said, after Jesus had risen, I got to see the nail prints in his hands. But the truth is, it's not just Thomas that believed that way. All of the disciples struggled to believe. Thomas just verbalized his uncertainties. But here in John chapter 11, Thomas is perhaps uncertain and lacking in confidence. Let's go and die. But he's not lacking in courage and devotion. 
He does not know what to make of the words of Christ, at least entirely. How much he understood of the Lord's instruction to walk while it is day, we may not be sure. But he is prepared to follow Jesus in obedience, even to die with the master. He he knew that so long as he and the others stayed close to Jesus, they would be in the Father's will, even if that meant death. Jesus reminds his men in verse 15 what the Apostle Paul also wrote to the church in Philippi, that the work of faith that Jesus started in his disciples, he's going to bring that to completion. The raising of Lazarus was intended by Christ to be a lesson on faith in the resurrection power of Christ. And to be sure, there was still work to be done because it wouldn't be until after the empty tomb that the disciples truly understood and believed all that Christ is, all that Messiah must do. And that includes Thomas. But when these disciples would witness the empty tomb and the nail prints on the hands of the Savior, they would believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The raising of Lazarus was just one lesson in faith. Now, I want to, instead of bringing some conclusions to this, I want to give us some meditation points for us to contemplate, to think on as we think of the Savior, our thoughts, our meditation on the Savior. When we think of Jesus Christ as the resurrection and life, we should be comforted by the truth of his love. We should be comforted by the truth of his love. It is easy for any one of us to become discouraged by troubles, trials, sickness, the threat of death. When we are discouraged and troubled by disappointments in this life, many of us retreat into the shadows of isolation or broken fellowship, sometimes in the search of pleasures and joys from the world in the temporal things. John 11 shows us a Savior who brings both sickness and death and even healing out of his undying love for us. This passage teaches us Though no matter what may come, we are protected and cared for by the power of God's love. So I would ask, is his love comforting us today? We're in the midst of this worldwide sickness. Do we find comfort in a Savior that loves us still? Whether I drive home and get in an accident, I die, or I get the COVID and I die, the Savior loves me still. He'll take care of me. Second, are we driven by the anticipation of his glory? As we think about Christ, are we motivated in this life with the anticipation that Christ would be glorified even through me? Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, believers should be driven by glory and not by fear and circumstances. It is he who directs the affairs of his church. He directs the lives of his people. Life in this world may not have moments of ease and comfort. We can always find some pleasure in this life. But we can be certain that it will also be filled with pain and sickness and trouble and death. And we can either live in fear and trepidation of those things, or we can be motivated by the glory that Jesus Christ promises to bring out of this troubled life. This much we can clearly see from John 11. 
The Son of God has full control over the future circumstances, even our own trials. He will be glorified in the work that he does through us. And as we walk in the light of his will, we will not stumble. It is only those believers who are living close to the Savior that are even going to appreciate that. Because there are far too many believers that stumble around in the darkness being directed by life's disappointments or sickness or death or failures. Too many Christians have fallen away from the light of God's will because this life has disappointed them in some way. So here's a point when we consider, meditate, when we contemplate the glory of Christ, does the glory of our Savior motivate me through life? If I'm looking to get the pleasures and the joys out of this life, I will be disappointed. But when I know my Savior is controlling even those sicknesses and disappointments, and I've got my eyes fixed on his glory, I cannot be disappointed because he will be glorified in the end. And third, as we consider the Savior, are we walking in the light of his will? Am I walking in the daylight? Am I walking close to Christ and on the pathway of his will? It is one thing to talk of what we believe, our doctrinal convictions and so forth, but Jesus also instructs us to walk while it is day. I'm talking now the practical living of our Christian faith. As believers, we're going to profess Christ. We're going to agree together on doctrine But the emphasis here is on our walk. Christians must be engaged in Christian activity. We cannot squander our days. We cannot be neglectful in our spiritual callings and duties. We may talk of feeling very close to Jesus, especially when facing trials, but to truly be close to God's Son means we are walking in the light of His will. We're following in the plans and purposes We're learning to walk in the pleasure of Christ. Brothers and sisters, are we attentive to our walk of faith? This is the daytime. Walk in the light. Father in heaven, your son is patient and loving towards us in teaching us what it means to belong to him, to see him as the resurrection and the life. And I trust even in my own life that you would allow me and work in me the ability to take my eyes off the sickness and darkness and the brokenness and the division of this world fallen in its sin. And I will see the glory that is to come, a glory promised by your son to be accomplished by him, even through the church and even through my life. Father, allow that we not be controlled by fear and trials and circumstances. But we always embrace the reality that no matter what I walk through, your son loves me still and he will care for me. Father, cause our feet to continue walking in the path of God's will and purposes. Keep us faithfully serving you, faithfully serving your church faithfully preaching and proclaiming the light of Christ, faithfully walking in obedience to our Savior. Let it not be just words. Let it be the practice of our very spiritual feet.
for the glory of our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.